0: Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. Go ahead and take a seat. Really grateful that uh, you guys are here with us today. Hey, if we haven't met yet before, my name is Dan and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here uh, for our LifePoint Worthington campus right alongside Jason Phillips, who is our campus life pastor. Uh, and we are just so grateful that you are here with us today. Hey, uh, as we're getting started, if this is your first time at a LifePoint service, or maybe the last couple weeks you've been kind of checking us out, saying, hey, what what is going on here? What is this about? I want to let you know about the easiest way that you can take your next step in finding out a little bit more about this community or uh, what is even happening here, what it looks like to be involved in God's activity through LifePoint Worthington. The easiest way to do that is you can take your phone and scan that QR code that's right on the seat in front of you that will take. You to a uh, page where you can fill out a quick, you know, I'm, hey, I am new form, uh, and all that's going to happen with that is we're going to be able to follow up with you later this week, and uh, I'll b- consider it like a five dollar Starbucks gift card. We'll go grab coffee and chat a little bit more about what it looks like to be involved here in this uh, community. The other thing you're going to find there is sermon notes. A uh, link. We we ha- we now have sermon notes at LifePoint Worthington. This is exciting. This is exciting. I didn't, I don't feel like you, you really mean that. Okay. Um, you got to know, like, it's hard for me to get those done. Okay. I'm not, I'm not gifted in that area. So the fact that we have sermon notes, God's grace, that's amazing. We'll see if you can follow along with them, Uh, but there there are uh, uh, scripture references and everything. If you just scan that QR code, you can follow along that way as well. It's kind of a neat little uh, thing that we have here. All right, hey, we are finishing up the last two weeks in our study in the New Testament book of Revelation. We've been studying Revelation for about eight weeks. This is week nine at LifePoint, and we've been saying all along the way that Revelation is a book written not to confuse us, uh, but it's written to comfort and sometimes confront us a little bit in the here and now. It is more about a present hope than just a future calendar. We've been saying that for the last eight weeks and we're coming down to the last two uh, two weeks of this series. Today, we're gonna be in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. Uh, you can open there if you have a real Bible, you can open up in, uh, in that or if you've got a fake Bible on your phone, uh, just click Revelation 19. It's all good. It's all good. Some of you be calling me out on, like, my fake Bible joke. So today, I have a real Bible with me. <laughs> okay? List joke's on you. All right. Revelation 19. And those of you who are familiar with the book of Revelation may be thinking right now, like, Dan, there's, there's a lot of ground to cover in two weeks. How, like, how are we going to— There's a lot of stuff we've got to talk about. How are we going to get it all? The, the answer is really easy. We're not going to get to all of it. Okay, We're not going to get to all of it. There's a couple different legitimate ways, I think, to teach through the book of Revelation. Uh, One of them is to do a deep dive and chase down every symbol and every uh, question. And that is a perfectly legitimate way to preach through the book of Revelation. It would take a little bit longer for us to do that. And so at LifePoint, what we've chosen to do is not uh, shy away from hard questions or skip over a bunch of things. What we want to do is kind of trace some of these, uh, you know, the uh, loose ends that show up uh, in the book of Revelation. Remember, Revelation is the final book in the New Testament. In some ways, it is like the capstone book that is tying together all the, the loose ends of God's storyline. And so we have been focusing a bit more thematically on what is happening in the book of Revelation. So if it feels like, hey, we're, we're jumping over a few things, send me an email. We'll sit down and have a conversation and I can explain to you why my view is right. Um, and we can, we can go from there. All right, Revelation 19. Uh, what we're going to see today uh, is that when all is said and done, when all is said and done, the overarching storyline of the book of Revelation uh, and the entire biblical storyline for that matter is that a day is coming and soon will be here when God will once and for all put an end to all evil, all pain all suffering and all hardship and he will gather his people together and celebrate a world made right now while you're getting to revelation 19 i want you to think about this for a second i don't know about you i feel like this last week has had me glued uh to the news in ways that I, I haven't I'm not normally like this I'm not the, the kind of person who wakes up and checks you know my news app first thing in the morning but this last week has been a lot more like that uh, for me I think there are certain moments that just they just kind of arrest our attention they grab a hold of us and I, I think we may be living in one of those moments right now uh, particularly as we watch what's happening on the global stage around us I mean the recent attacks last weekend uh, in Israel are, have been just another reminder of the brutality of the world that we live in today. It's a reminder of the brutality of the world we live in. While, you know, I'll spare the details, I think many of us who have followed along some of this story have just been horrified at the reprehensible evil of Hamas and what has happened in the Middle East, our own president. used very interesting language to describe this, calling it sheer evil which is a whole conversation we could have in and of itself. And, and, and while we watch some of these things, and there's, there's, a t- there's a ton of stuff that's really concerning about it, one of the things that has stuck out to me is I've been trying to process this and chatting with other people trying to process this. One of the strongest things is that in the cultural moment we live in today, right? We, we, we're not really sure what to do with stories like this listen, I, I know we all have, we, we got some different perspectives. We, we've, we've, you know, we've lived life differently. We may have very different responses to what we're seeing happening right now. But, but I think that there are one, generally one of, of two responses that we default into when we try and make sense of stories like this. Some of us, uh, and maybe, you know, I lean a bit more in this direction. Some of you are like me in this. We, we uh, hear stories of what's happening maybe over there and we, we start to envision this kind of dystopian future uh, that plays out as different countries get more and more involved in an increasingly global conflict. The thing, uh, you know, it it, it escalates at an exponential pace, and the more you think about it, uh, you know, the more terrifying the prospects become. Uh, There is this very real and deep sense of fear and anxiety over what's happened. That that has been me uh, for the last week. You can ask my wife about it. She's like, you, you gotta stop telling me about these horrible things that are happening because I just keep bringing it up over dinner, which is not a great environment when my kids are sitting right there, you know? but Others of us, and we have a bit of a different response and, and you may find yourself here. where It seems like you know, we may hardly have the capacity, it feels like, uh, to, to, to think about these things anymore. Right, and, and like many of the other stories of evil that hit the news cycle that we see because it happens almost every week, right? You may be in the spot where you're like, man, I, you're shocked, you are appalled, you are disgusted, and the response is to like keep scrolling because I, I, I don't know what to do with that. I think that this is an increasingly prominent way in our society of dealing with evil. Remember I said last week that the new problem of evil that we encounter in our world today is not like how do we deal with it, but what happens when it comes and slaps us across the face? Because it does show up. What do we do with it? Right? That it becomes so common that we get used to it, we're we're almost numb to new stories of things that keep happening and it's not that we we don't care, right? If you're in this camp, it's not that you don't care about what's happening. It just feels like the problems are so vast and so complicated and uh, maybe even nuanced at times that we just kind of feel lost in this fog of finding a way forward. You may feel stuck, and, and the language you may have here is like, I just, I just want this to stop. How many of you feel like that? I, I just want this to stop. You may not even know if that's possible. But I bring this up today because I think this is part of what it means to be human. It's part of what it means to be human. This this innate longing that we seem to have, that we all seem to have for an end. Those of you following the storyline in, in Israel and the Middle East right now, you think, think about how many times you've heard other world leaders say something along the line of, like, this has gone too far. It needs, to, it needs to end. Things can't keep going on like this. Even if they can't agree on how it's supposed to stop or what it would take to make it stop. You see, part of what it means to be human is to have this universal longing for a world where this kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. For a world made right. This is what we've spent our time talking about the last couple of weeks in Revelation. A few weeks ago, we looked at the justice and the judgment of God, how he holds both of these things perfectly in tension. We we, we talked about the universal longing for justice that exists in each and every one of us that is almost stamped into our genetic code. We can't help but crave an end to, uh, to evil and violence. We can't help but crave it. And when we get to Revelation 19, what we start to see is that this craving will be met. The day will come when there will be a complete and utter end to evil. And I'm not talking about evil in the abstract. I'm talking about the everyday things that we encounter in this life, the the things from which you may carry very deep scars or open wounds to this day. Talking about a day where where none of that happens anymore. The astounding thing is about the Christian worldview is that we don't propose that we just sit back and wait for that day. I just hope it happens and kind of hide out somewhere to to be spared from things, but but that uh, each and every day, even today, before we leave this room, we have an opportunity to have a foretaste of what that day will be like, of what that world will be like. So if you're not there yet, open with me to Revelation 19. I'm going to read a part of this passage. I'll pray and then we'll get started. Revelation 19, starting in verse 1, says this, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude of heaven and heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God. All you, his servants, all you who fear him, small and great. Let's pray. Father, we pause in this moment right now. and We ask for your help. We ask for your help as we understand not only this passage that you have brought us to today, but as you help us understand what it means to live this out in the world around us today. God, we're mindful uh, that as we gather on a Sunday morning, each one of us, we're walking in here. We got things we're thinking about. The mental load is heavy. We may be coming in here filled with just like a deep sense of anxiety about what this week holds. We know we got some hard things coming up that we have to step into. And Lord, we're just, just anxious about it. And Maybe it's the last week. Relationship maybe we have watched has just kind of imploded or we know that there is, there, there, there is a conversation we need to have with somebody else that we've been putting off and, and, and it just continues to kind of jab at us. And uh, Lord, we, we know that on either end, we come in uh, with just, just a heavy burden. How grateful are we that you invite us not to pretend that we don't carry any baggage with us. You invite us to bring these things to your your feet. Psalm 55, you invite us to cast our cares on you. And you do not promise that you will uh, remove us from those situations, that you will spare us from those situations, but what your word promises is that you will sustain us through them. And so, God, we ask that today, by the power of your word, by the power of the gospel, that you would sustain us through whatever we encounter in this next week. God, we pray that your word today would not return to you void, that you would accomplish in our hearts and minds what you have set forward for us in your word. That we would not be hearers only, but that we would be doers as we go back into the spaces and places where you have called us. And Lord, I also think of uh, the many other gospel preaching churches that are gathered this morning. Uh, Father, I think of our friends up at Ethos Church just north of us. God, we pray as they are gathering now that you would richly bless their time together. Father, that that would be a community that is a powerful witness to the gospel. Lord, we pray for uh, our other Life Point churches that are gathering now. Meet us all and send us out to be your hands and feet in the world around us. We pray for Worthington, God, that you would give us great favor in this community, and that we would see many come to faith in Jesus, not for our fame, but for yours. We thank you, we trust you, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and get uh, started. Here's the first thing I want us to see Revelation 19. Revelation 19 invites us, uh, invites us as God's people, to rejoice over the end of evil. It invites us to rejoice over the end of evil. Now, if you're just joining us today uh, for the first time, maybe you've missed the last couple of weeks uh, of messages in this series, let me encourage you, go back on our website. You can find and listen to some of the messages we've done over the last couple of weeks, specifically the last two uh, in Revelation. will we'll give a ton of context for what we're talking about today, right? This is not because I want our you know, ratings to go up and uh, you know how many listens we get on a, on a message, but it's gonna give a ton of context for what we're talking about today. One of the things we saw last week, Babylon, uh, was, which represents all evil, th- this, 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 this evil, powerful empire at work in the world around us today. John is rejoicing over the final defeat of Babylon, calling it this uh, great city, and he, he looks forward to the day when that city no longer has any power, when it is demolished. This is the victory song at the end of evil. Look again at verse 1. Verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice. A great multitude in heaven, right? uh, Are crying out before God, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And has avenged on her the blood of his servants, And once more, they cried out, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. See, John envisions this great city that represents this evil system and structure in power in our world today, Babylon, uh, as a demolished city. He says, that power, that reign, the influence of Babylon has an end date. Right, And while John is seeing a part of what will happen at some point in the future, but the point for us today is that there is an end. There is an end fixed by God who will put a stop to all of the chaos and the madness and brokenness that we encounter here in this life. And I think that this starts to help us make sense of the world around us, or at least process some of the things that we're seeing uh, at play in the world around us. I said last week that one of the challenges we have, particularly in the American church today, is that we seem to constantly underestimate how powerful Babylon actually is. Right. That instead we can and should expect Babylon to throw its weight around. We should expect hardship as followers of Jesus. There there is not this smooth sailing path set before us, but we will encounter with increasing difficulty a culture and society around us that is hostile to the message and the way of Jesus. This is Babylon throwing its weight around. Right, some of you, again, today, you bear the scars and the open wounds, maybe, inflicted by Babylon. But the hope in Revelation, the hope in Revelation, is that Babylon does not get the final word. Right, Babylon does not go unchecked forever, but that God hears the cries of his people, he knows the suffering of his people, and he will act. Right, In the song in Revelation 19, it's not simply like this, yay, we did it, Babylon's over song. No, I mean, that would that'd be far too simplistic. But see, Revelation 19, in these words, this is the chorus that one day every follower of Jesus will join through tears All these words pull together all of the unspoken pain, the things that we've maybe never told anybody about, and are finally at a place to rejoice that God has put an end to it all. It's hard to even put into words uh, what this will be like because it all falls short of the incomprehensible reality of a world without evil, a world without pain, a world without suffering. I mean, think about the for, for a moment. Can, can, can we imagine what that will be like? Right? Now, I'm not just talking about a world where you know, everyone is nice to each other. It's always fall, and you can get your pumpkin spice stuff, and Aldi never runs out of avocados, right? It's not, it's not what I'm talking about. So friends, what John is telling us, what he, what he is pointing forward to, is a world where there is no more pain, where you are never again diagnosed with anything. You, you never find out, again, that you have been betrayed by a spouse because it doesn't happen. A world where you, you have no fear, where you, you know, never question what people really think about you, where, where there is no more longing, not because you're numb to the world, but because you are perfectly content and perfectly satisfied. A world of joy and beauty and, and wonder. This this is what John is talking about. When when we talk about, in in the church, we talk about this idea of heaven. This is what John is describing for us. Not just some place we go at some point in the future, but a world made right. Now, what would that look like? How, How do we picture that? And if revelation is meant to give us hope for here and now, we, you know, f- that we experience here and now, how do we hold on to this kind of hope for something like that that we cannot even imagine? Well, I, l- I love what John describes next. I love what he s- describes next, because in a few short words, he gives us this incredibly rich, tangible, and palpable imagery that says, hey, if you want to know what that day is like If you want to know what, what, that, what that day will be like and feel like, think about it this way. Look at verse six. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Right? This is his kingdom, right? He, he perfectly, fully reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the, here it is, the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Once more the angel said to me, write this down, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. He said, These words are true, the true words of God. He says, If you want to envision what that day will be like, what, we, what it will feel like to see the world made right, he says, Think of a wedding. Think of a wedding. Look at that phrase in verse 7 and again in verse 8 the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right, that the culmination of all of what God has been, is, and will be doing in this world, the full arc of that story, John says, is like a wedding. And we got to understand, he's talking about something that's a little bit different than what we tend to think of when we uh, think of weddings today. Right? Today, so, so much planning goes into a wedding. Like as a husband, I, uh, husbands can resonate with this, I think. You always hit this point where you're like, let's just get married on a Sunday at church, and whoever's there is there, and we'll have cake downstairs. We don't need all this other stuff. But I, I, that, my wife did not like that idea, um, so we didn't do that. But there's all of this work that goes into the venue planning. You, you know, you have uh, you, you have uh, clothing, you have menus, you encounter made-up colors that you've never heard of before, and the need to make decisions about them and decor, and all of this culminates in like a 35-minute service, and that may be on the long side, and a several-hour-long party. All good, all good. I'm not I'm not hating on weddings. I love weddings. But weddings in John's day were were usually up to seven days long. That's a little bit different. Seven days long. And it's not just one moment of celebration. This is what we need to understand. When John's describing a wedding, he's not talking about a single moment in time, which is how we often view this passage in Revelation, talking about a single moment in time. He is talking about this extended season that continues to go on and on and on. And the highlight of a wedding at, in his day would have been this grand meal that all of the guests would have arrived and gathered around a banquet table for, and they would have enjoyed uh, the marriage feast together. This is the highlight of those seven-day period, the marriage supper. And so when John starts talking about a wedding Right, His original audience would not have thought at all about a single moment in time. They would have thought about this extended, drawn-out season, which actually helps us make sense of the rest of the book of Revelation. We're going to see all of this wedding imagery show up at the, towards the end of this book. It's describing this ongoing wedding. You can think about it this way, that the end of Revelation, 19, 20, 21, and 22, those chapters are like, a, uh, they're like zooming in on a wedding ceremony and then cutting out to see what What's happening outside of the wedding from time to time, back and forth, but it's all describing this wedding, culminating uh, in a meal. It's all culminating in this the marriage supper of the Lamb. The same thing that John talks about in verses seven and eight. You see, this is not some random, uh, not some random illustration John is using. He's not sitting there thinking, uh, "Hey, this would be a neat way to say this." He's not just uh, just given a meal um, as the, the way that he should describe this." There's something more overarching happening. And when you start to think about it, if you look back through the story of God's people, you will find time after time after time that meals become one of the primary ways that God communicates to his people, invites them uh, to retell and relive the most significant moments uh, in the, the story of God's people. People. Meals show up everywhere. And it's all building to this final meal that John describes for us here in verses 7 through 9, you think about it this way. If, if meals are used to tell and retell and relive the story of God, what is that story that it's inviting us to relive and retell? I mean, after all, it is the first meal in Genesis that we encounter where Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, given freedom to choose from any tree except one tree. And just like any, just like any of our own kids would do today, the first thing they do when they're told not to do something is they go do that thing. They eat from that tree, or the, 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 the eating of that fruit is the first act of rebellion against God as, as Adam and Eve, they take and they eat. Hold on to those words. They take and they eat from the tree, breaking the relationship between them, the rest of humanity, and God himself. It is a meal that first plunges us into an en- in- infinitely intensified brokenness that we see and feel in the world around us. But it is also a meal, right, that signifies God's providence in the lives of his people. At the end of Genesis, Joseph, you remember this story, is sold into slavery by his own family and what they meant for evil, right, God made something good for them. Joseph, the slave, brought into prominence in Egypt and he is able to provide grain, a meal for his family to sustain them through a Uh, famine. It is a meal in the book of Exodus that tells the story of God's freedom that he gives for his people. As the Israelites prepare their food before they enter into the wilderness, the Passover meal that they are supposed to uh, practice and take every year without fail, with their shoes on, their belts fastened as a way to remind them that God brought us quickly and swiftly out of slavery, out of bondage, and into freedom. They eat bitter herbs to remember the pain and suffering they encountered in their bondage and the passover lamb whose blood they put on the doorpost of their house to so the angel would pass over their house Having died in their place. It's a meal in the book of Numbers where God tells the story of God's preservation of his people through extraordinary means. Each day for 40 years, they're in the wilderness. They wake up and they find this powder on the ground. And and the Hebrew word they use is called manna, which means what is this? And they use this powder and they make bread and it's this meal that God uses to preserve his people for 40 years in the wilderness. It is a meal that the prophet Isaiah proclaims looking forward to see the ultimate work of God coming to completion saying in Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, he says this, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of And aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It is the time after time after time in the New Testament we see Jesus showing up to parties and in peace. People's homes with all of the wrong kinds of people, according to the religious leaders. As if uh, he's trying to say to them, hey, you have missed what the kingdom of God is about, that it's far broader than what you originally thought about. It's not just for people you imagined who should be there, but it is for people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. It is the last meal that Jesus eats with his own disciples as they're huddled together in an upper room wait on the night when he was betrayed, celebrating the very Passover meal that we just talked about And as they finished eating and reflecting on the sacrificial lamb, right, he took some of the bread sitting at that table and he broke it for them and he passed it along and he said, I want you to eat this bread and when you eat this bread, I want you to think about this. I want you to remember me. I want you to remember the sacrificial lamb that died in your place for your sin and your brokenness. And then he passed around uh, uh, the wine to the rest of the table and they said, I want you to drink this. And when you drink this, I want you to remember, I want you to think about me. I want you to remember me. Remember the blood of the lamb that signifies the new covenant or the new way, the new kind of relationship between God and man. And it is, then the Apostle Paul, picking up on this last meal, instructing the churches that he started all across the Mediterranean world, he says, when you get together, here's one of the things I want you to do regularly when you gather. He says, I want you to come together, and I want you to have a meal, and just like Jesus did, I want you to take bread, and I want you to break it, and I want you to pass it around to one another. And I want you to eat that bread. And when you do, I want you to think about Jesus and remember him and and him as the the sacrificial lamb who died in your place for your sin. And then I want you to take a cup and I want you to pass it around the community and I want you to drink that cup. And as you drink it, remember the blood of Jesus that washes away the stain of your sin and, and celebrate the new kind of life that you have in Jesus. And so by the time we get to Revelation 19, I mean there is this trail of meals all through the biblical storyline uh, telling pieces of the greatest story of fall and forgiveness and freedom. And finally, the last piece comes into place in Revelation 19. Not not, not fall, not forgiveness, not freedom, but restoration. The marriage supper of the Lamb. As all the people of God from every tribe, nation, and tongue from every generation. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Gathered together to celebrate. A world made right. Friends, this is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's beautiful. Let me pause here for a minute. Because... You may be asking yourself, why, why am I camping out here so long? Why am I camping out here so long? I mean, the, after all, the, there are a lot of things that we could and probably should talk about in the book of Revelation. I, I'm digging into this one image of a meal at the end of time. I mean, how, how important could this be compared to all the other stuff we need to talk about and chase down? I mean, I, guys, I'm not even talking about the millennium, millennial kingdom kind of preacher am I? If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. We can talk about it later. If you do know what it is, email me. We can talk about it and I can, you know, I can tell you why I'm right again. <laughs> the reason I'm camping out here on this meal is because I think that there's something very powerful, something we often miss. and we, we are not good about doing this in the, uh, the Western church in particular, the, the American church in particular. We are not good about this because we are often on to the next thing. We want to get to the, to the very next thing. We're about, we are doers. I'm talking about this because I think there's something very powerful But this process that uh, author and philosopher Jamie K.A. Smith, he calls this imagining the kingdom. Imagining the kingdom. Today, as followers of Jesus, one of my concerns is that we can get so caught up in the brokenness and the chaos of this life, the things that we encounter here and now, uh, that we unintentionally deflate our longing for the next life. And so for just a moment, just a moment, I I want to plead with you. I want to plead with you to see that that what we experience right now, that that, that what is right now is not all, uh, is not what will always be. But for a moment, you see, in Revelation 19, we, we are invited to imagine a world made new. That, that even now, while we experience hunger pains, deep cravings for that kind of world, what would it will be like to live in that kind of world? Friends, we have a hope and promise that, that we live in a world where that will one day be satisfied. But that hunger points to uh, the the fact that that hunger is meant to be satisfied and the invitation of Jesus uh, is that there is a, a new kind of life that does not end in craving, that does not end in unsatisfaction, but ends being perfectly fulfilled and satisfied. There is a new way of life that actually makes sense of the strongest desires and hunger pains we have for a world made right. And that way of life is found in Jesus. Right? And that way of life is open to any and all who would trust in him and his work on the cross, putting your faith in him, pledging your allegiance to him and him alone. And friends, in that you too are invited to this banquet. You are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb where all will be made right. All things will be made new. For some of you, today is that day where you say, "I I have been living and running on the outskirts of this banquet for far too long. The invitation for you today is to trust in Christ and be welcomed in for the marriage supper of the lamb. Now let me close with this. What are we supposed to do with any, what are we supposed to do with this? This business about a wedding and a meal other than being hungry right here and now. I think one of the things that this means for us, friends, is that we have an opportunity, even before we leave this room. Remember, there, there is this trail of meals throughout the biblical storyline, and there is this pattern that shows up. It's fascinating in the early church, and something we have tended to move away from, again, particularly in, the, in our cultural context right now. We've tended to move away from this. And it's the practice of uh, what the, the earliest Christians, they called it koinonia. It's a word that means table fellowship. It's this process of sitting down, welcoming someone else into your home and enjoying a meal together. See, the earliest Christians were, were, they devoted themselves to this practice of breaking bread with one another. Breaking bread with others and saying, let's gather around a table, uh, not not just so that we can eat good food, but because it's as we gather around this table, we we, we get a foretaste of what the future will one day look like when we are all gathered around the greater table. We get to celebrate the good gifts of God's uh, provision uh, of friendship, of his his kindness as we gather around this table. One of the things I think we need to recover in the church today is this ancient practice of koinonia, of opening up our home and saying, Come, join me. Let's eat together. And as we eat together, what we're doing is saying, Hey, I'm going to fix my hope and my affection, not just in this moment on this meal, but this represents, this is a foretest of the far greater meal that that we look forward to. Friends, I think this is an essential practice for our church. Right now, in this season, you think about where we are at. We're just, we're, we're, a, a, as a new uh, LifePoint campus, we are five weeks old. And we have the opportunity to do one of two things. We, 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 can, do, we, we can come and do church. And you know what? We, we can do church really well. You come here on a Sunday morning, we can have somebody uh, preach, we can have somebody sing, we can pray a little bit, and we can go back home and then rejoin uh, the next Sunday or maybe you know, every other Sunday or whatever, whatever like that. And we, we can do that kind of church really well. I want us to reject that and say, hey, no, no, we, we are going to be in one another's lives We are going to open up our lives together as a community and say, God, teach us together. We're gonna experience authentic community together. We walk through the trenches together and part of where that happens is at the table. There there are people in this church right now, today, that you need to say, hey, let's go go grab lunch today or let's get a time on the calendar when you can come over into our home. Let's enjoy a meal together. One of the hardest seasons for me as a pastor, hardest season for me as a pastor, uh, was was not COVID. It was the year and a half after COVID. Wrestling through just the wake of suspicion and anger and frustration in in our local church back in Chicago. And I think this was true for so many churches where we had been so disenfranchised with, uh, you know, people's different opinions and things like that. We didn't know who, who we could have a real conversation with or who was gonna be you know, triggered by whatever stance we you know, stumbled upon in the course of a conversation. We didn't know what that was gonna be like. And it was really hard as a pastor to navigate that space on the end. And I'll tell you, know, this, we'll have a longer story conversation about this later on. I, I hit a burnout moment where I said I was done. Like I'm, I, I'm, I told Courtney, I don't wanna set foot in another church. Like if this is if this is the way God's people interact with each other, I I don't want anything to do with that, and, and I need to walk away. Unfortunately, uh, I had some people in my life at that that stage who said, "Brother, we think you need a break. Like don't don't walk away from everything. Take some time, get some rest." And it was out of that rest period that my wife and I stumbled upon this uh, practice of koinonia, of opening our home, having a meal together. And what we did was very very methodical in that time. And this is not to say, hey, we figured out the secret sauce, do what we did. But what we found was that on Friday nights, it's what we set aside, that was gonna be our meal time. We'd sit down, we'd light a candle, and say, this candle, we're we're gonna remember that, that Jesus is gonna be the light in our home. We're going to reflect on him. We're going to have a nice meal. We're going to sit down. We're going to have some uh, grape juice. We're going to enjoy the provision of God's kindness for us. We're going to celebrate that. We're going to enjoy this as something that God has given us. And each food we ate was a tangible representation of some way that God had provided for us in the week. What we began to feel is our, you know, Soul started to wake back up again, and the Lord started pressing on us, like, "Hey, maybe we'd need to invite other people into this with us." And we started to open our home and, and invite people in to uh, celebrate. Uh, it was our Sabbath dinner to invite to celebrate that with us. And what we found, the time and time again, is that Lord used those types of conversations to fill one another up, and encourage, and strengthen and send us back out. He he used that to do what I think one author called, uh, he he used that to uh, practice contagious holiness. Not because we had figured it out, but because together in community around the table, we were learning from one another and celebrating together God's good gifts to us in a meal. Friends, we have the opportunity to step into that kind of authentic community together. Together. Not only that, I think it's fascinating that uh, throughout history, followers of Jesus have taken a meal and have said, we are going to regularly do this together, and we are going to retell and relive the story of God's kindness to us. And that meal uh, has a couple different names. Some of you may have grown up calling this the Eucharist. Some of you may have grown up calling this communion or the Lord's Supper and whatever you call it, what is happening in that moment is you're gathering with, uh, as a local church and saying, hey, we are going to celebrate and remember uh, the story of Jesus, right? And if we look forward to a wedding feast, think of this as the rehearsal dinner that we get to do regularly. Regularly. We sit, we break bread, we drink the cup, and we remember and retell and relive the story of the gospel. This is why I think this is so important for us to take communion, not just in our own homes, but as, as a church gathered together, because what we're doing uh, in a moment, you'll, you, you will have gotten uh, a cup on your way in. We're gonna take this bread and we're gonna say together, hey, this bread uh, re- uh, represents Jesus' body nailed to a cross instead of my own. And not only do we say, this is for me, we look around, we see other people who are taking the bread, and we remember that, that, that Jesus died for them too. They need the gospel just as much as I do. We take the cup. And we remember Jesus' blood that washes away the stain of our sin. And we don't do this in isolation only, but in in community, because we remember uh, across the room that Jesus' blood is not just for me. It is for for all who are taking the cup. We remember uh, that they need the gospel just as much as I do. And what we're doing in this moment, friends, this rehearsal dinner for the great wedding feast, is we remember, we retell, And we relive the story of the gospel in community. On your way in, you should have received some of these communion cups. If if you did not receive one, uh, here are some instructions. First of all, this meal, this for you, this is for those of us who are followers of Jesus. If you're here today, you're not sure what you believe about Christianity, not sure what you believe about Jesus, we'd ask that you not participate in this part of the service You don't need to be a member at this church or belong to to, to this church, but this is open for any and all who are followers of Jesus. If you did not grab one on your way in and would like one, you can raise your hand. We have some folks coming around to give those to you. And what we will do in this moment, friends, is we will take this Together, we will join the rehearsal dinner together. When Jesus did this, he had real bread and real drink, not Styrofoam and Robitussin. And that room filled with the crackle of all God's people as they opened the (laughs) elements. But he took the bread. Let me read to you what the Apostle Paul says about this because he highlights this for us so well. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that uh, that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, eat this in remembrance of me. Friends, today, we take the bread and we eat this together, remembering Jesus' body that was nailed to a cross on our behalf. Let's eat this together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. He held it up and he said, "This, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, a new kind of relationship between God and man. This new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, friends. Today, let's drink the cup, remembering Jesus' blood that washes away the stain of our sin." rehearsal dinner that is a foretaste of a world made right, of a world made new. And it's a reminder that we still yearn for and long for the day when all God's people are gathered around the banquet table to to celebrate the victory of God over Satan, sin, and death and celebrate a world Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you that we can trust you to go before us and continue uh, to speak to us long after we leave this place. We pray, Lord, that you uh, would use this meal and as we open our homes, meals with others to remind us both of our need of the gospel and our longing for the world set right in Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We trust you and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Friend, let's stand and sing together.